go ahead and grab a seat and you can get your Bibles out. Open those Bibles up to Romans. Romans chapter 1. Today's sermon is titled, Not Ashamed of the Gospel. Not Ashamed of the Gospel. It may also be titled, From Faith to Faith. There's a number of different themes here. Just in in, uh, about eight verses, we're going to be covering 8 through 17. And uh, excited to be in the book of Romans. I was able to listen to Pastor Chris's teaching Last Sunday, wonderful introduction, the first seven uh, verses. I, I did catch him counting on his fingers, um, which, I, no, I'm just teasing. Um, I'm gonna do, it's just our thing now. Let's use our fingers. Um, I'm pretty sure my high school speech teacher in Lakeview knew what she was talking about when she made that rule, but we're going to break it. Um, and, uh, and so we're just moving on in Romans and um, looking at verses 8 through 17. Romans has been called... The Fort Knox of Bible Doctrine. And I really feel like the Lord wants to do a work this time through the book of Romans. Last time we went through it as a church was in 2011 and 2012. So it's been about, um, you know, about 11 years or so that we've been um, in this book, since we've been in this book. And I really feel like just on my heart as I've been studying, it's just so deep. I kind of thought, oh, I've taught Romans so many times, I'm just going to kind of be able to come on in and breeze through. And I know I thought that about John, and John ended up just being like just a big, thick steak, you know. In Romans already, I'm like, oh, no, what have I gotten myself into? I'm in over my head Um, because it's just so deep. And so we're just covering 8 through 17 today as we get into this Fort Knox of Bible doctrine. And I really feel like the Lord wants you guys, um, some of you are younger Christians or or you've been Christian your whole, you know, nearly your whole life. And you just have always been kind of immature or babies in the faith. And the Lord is like, through Romans, I want you to cut your teeth. Like, I want you to to start growing in maturity and understanding doctrine and being discipled in the truths of God, his plans for salvation, his plans for setting you apart from this world and your sin and um, knowing just how he wants to use you uh, to be a light for him in this world. And I just really feel like if you'll just be faithful and stick through it and stick to it and be coming on these Sundays and going through Romans with us, the Lord just wants to really equip you for great things uh, in depth of maturity. Um, John Chrysostom was called the Golden Tongue Preacher. It's actually what his name Chrysostom means, Golden Tongued. And he used to preach, and he was so good, this is the third century that his church would stand up and applaud as he was preaching. And he had to do a special sermon telling them, you shouldn't do that. Don't stand up and applaud anymore. And guess what they did? Stood up and applaud during that sermon. Uh, Golden tongue. So he always had that very well-respected church father. And it was Chrysostom who said he read the book of Romans every week for 18 years. So he was a guy that knew the book of Romans inside and out. 
when I first uh, started teaching Romans about 11 years ago, I started memorizing the book. Uh, I think I made it to chapter 9, and it's just something that uh, just comes up all the time. You're just always going to Romans. When you start just putting whole books into your brain and into your heart, it comes up all the time. So hopefully this this time through we'll get 9 through 16 in the old brain bank as well. Um, and when I was a young youth pastor, our high school group memorized Romans chapter 8 together. So there was about four weeks that we would come together and just work on memorizing it together. And, uh, and can't wait to get to the great eight with you guys in a number of weeks as well. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine the sensation that the mere mention of the word Rome would arouse in first century people who lived just in the faraway provinces of the ancient world. It was said that Rome was the eternal city which had given the world peace, wrote Bishop Stephen Neal. It was the fount of law, the center of civilization, the mecca of poets and orators and artists, while being at the same time a home of every kind of idolatrous worship. And it's fun to be going into Rome, so, uh, Romans so immediately after the book of Acts because we just left off where Paul finally made it to Rome and finally got to see this church he'd written this letter to and ministered to them and then preached the gospel there. We have it pretty fresh in our heads historically, the relationship that Paul had with the Romans. And with that, if you haven't listened to Chris's introduction last week, listen to it. It, Such a great teaching. And you can go on YouTube and something in our life that we have these days. I listened to Chris's teaching at time and a half on YouTube. It was just super fun, you know, all of his jokes landed, you know, and all the deep doctrine was just powerful still. And I was like, oh, it was so good. I was able to listen to it and, and then dive right into my study on it. So sometimes that helps if you just need to get, get through it, turn it up a little bit. That's okay. Um, but we're kicking into that deep relationship Paul had with the Romans. And he says in verse eight, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. And your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Uh, an incredible witness the Roman church already was. Now, allowing for a degree of understandable exaggeration, it was, it was still true that wherever the church had spread, the news of the Christians in, in Rome had spread as well. And just wonderful thing that I think wherever the Holy Spirit's moving, this is the case. Uh, for us, just such a tiny church on a tiny dot on a tiny map uh, of Prineville, and um, just the work that God has done through our church in Nepal and your generosity to be sending missionaries and support. And, uh, you know, if, if you didn't catch our missionary update in Nepal, we just um, paid for the second story of a church in a village in Nepal to be built. And just that church is just thrilled just of the generosity of you guys. Uh, just last week, we sent money down uh, for a new Honda dirt bike to be bought in Nepal so that Pastor Raju can travel around the villages around Lapu where there's about four different young church plants starting and, and he's just going to be going and ministering. And then those pastors are also getting dirt bikes and heading up to the Solo Kumu region by Everest where we went on our first trip. And they're going to be doing a special unreached 
um, mission up in there through dirt bikes and then going to another region in the Mustang area of Nepal. And so they're just all right, they're just like so thankful that the Lord has just used our body to tune them into the unreached that now they're heading out on dirt bikes to go to the Himalayas and preach the gospel to the unreached. And, and they're just so thankful for you guys. And, uh, and just testimony, I heard of a, a testimony of, uh, a distant relative of a friend of ours in Oklahoma who brought up at a funeral, there was no idea that there was a connection to our church. And at a funeral in Oklahoma, someone mentioned there's a church in Prineville where God is moving so radically. And they were referring to us. I wish that he'd do that in our denomination. And, uh, my friend was like, they don't even know that I know you guys and they're talking about you guys. And so over in Oklahoma at a random funeral, this is the kind of stuff that it's just God's grace and the power of his Holy Spirit. It was happening in Rome and we worship the Lord and praise him that it's happening for Prineville uh, as well. Look in verse nine, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God uh, to come to you for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established and so he just right you know we haven't had this Acts 28 experience yet where he's finally seen them he's just writing to them I'm so excited to see you guys and we see in Acts chapter 28 that a number of these Christians uh, hiked that 125 miles to three inns. Do you remember that two weeks ago? Or to Appy Forum, it's called, where um, they met up with him and then hiked the 125 miles back to Rome. Uh, just the deep relationship that Paul would write to them, that he longs to see them and uh, he wants to give them some spiritual gift. Some have thought, well, maybe it's spiritual gifts of prophecy and teaching and being able to preach the gospel so that there could be church leadership there uh, so that they could be established. Uh, you could understand this heartfelt connection the apostle had, even though he didn't, he hardly knew them. He just desired for that church to be edified and to be built up. And you can almost tell as he's talking about, I want to come, I want to impart to you so that your church will be filled up. And then he, he almost like corrects himself in verse 12. Well, that is that I may be encouraged with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me, uh, or ESV, if you're reading it today, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. So as he's writing, I want to come, I want to impart to you some gift and build you up. Oh man, now that I'm thinking about it, I want to be built up by you guys. We have a mutual faith where it goes both ways, uh, where we will both serve one another and build each other up. John Stott said, no sooner has he dictated these words than he seems to sense their inappropriate one-sidedness as if he has everything to give and nothing to receive. So he immediately explains, even corrects himself, and although he's an apostle, he's not too proud to acknowledge his need of it. Happy is the modern missionary who goes to another country and culture in the same spirit of receptivity, anxious to receive as well as give, to learn as well as teach, to be encouraged as well as encourage. And happy are the congregations who have a pastor of the same humble mind." And so I want to just encourage you guys that as we gather together throughout the week, Sunday morning, whatever it may be, um, 
you know, there may need to be the Lord correcting something in you where you think, oh, I'm just coming to Calvary Chapel to just receive and be fed and be built up and be a bit of a consumer maybe, but not give out, not pour, pour out, not serve. There's plenty of ways to be serving anytime we're gathering together. But perhaps one of the greatest is what the book of Hebrews says, that we would be aware of one another and be intentionally, excuse me, I don't know where that big swallow came from. (laughs) The the reflex wasn't happening. Uh, That we would be intentionally looking out for one another so that we could stir one another up towards love and good works. And the language there in the book of Hebrews just speaks of great intentionality where we are just aware of who's around us, maybe what might be going on in their life. Maybe they're new to the church, new to the community, going through some loss, some hardship, some rejoicing, some stirring up. And we're just out for building up one another, but also receiving from one another. And sometimes that's hard. It's, it's encouraging to me when people ask, uh, Rory, how are you doing? And it, it, and it's not like it never happens. It happens regularly, but it feels like out of place. Like, you shouldn't be asking me that. I should be asking you that, you know? And, and it's like, no, like, this is really special that they care how I'm doing as well. And then I kind of have to, like, crack the wall down just a little bit and, and try to be like, how am I doing? And how can I be real with this person so they can pray for me, bear my burden, rejoice with me, and all of those things? So are you catching the reciprocal nature of Christian fellowship? Even the apostle wasn't too proud to say, you know what? I need something from you guys as well. Verse 13. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you just as among the Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians both to wise and unwise. And so Paul says, man, I've been longing to come to you. I really feel like like a missions movement will be starting through the church in Rome. And I just long to see the fruit of missions happening in Rome and then going out from there. Uh, People nowadays, John Stott said, tend to regard evangelism as an optional extra to consider if they were to engage in it is that you when you think of opening up your mouth and telling something about telling someone about jesus the hope of heaven the gospel the reality of their sin and the wrath of god towards sinners the the saving nature of the lord is heart to to save people from sin and to eternal life to know him and be reconciled to him is that something that just doesn't pop in your mind as something to do or that it's just an optional extra uh, Stott says sometimes we feel like we're just doing a favor for God. But Paul spoke of it as a debt or as an obligation. The modern moon, mood is one of reluctance, but Paul's was one of eagerness. In verses 14 through 16, we see three different I am statements. The first one in verse 14 is, I am a debtor. I am a debtor. This word debtor speaks of obligated. I'm obligated. And it's not that he's borrowed anything from the Romans that he has to repay. That often is why we think of debt. Oh, yeah. Like I owe you because I borrowed something from you or I took out a loan. There can also be the third party nature of indebtedness. And that is that 
someone gave me something to give to you, and until I give it to you, I have a, a an obligation or an indebtedness to you to get that to you. I've been entrusted with a stewardship of something. And Paul says, man, from the Lord, I've received a stewardship of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel to you. And until I do that, I'm indebted to you. And I think that's really a good mindset for us to have for the world out there that we're called to evangelize and to tell the gospel to is that we are debtors to tell people of Jesus's salvation. We ourselves have been recipients of such a great grace. And now we are to go and give out such a great grace. And until we're doing that, man, we're just holding on to the treasure that's been entrusted us to give out. So I just encourage you, the Lord is in that mission. And so he's not going to leave you hanging in that moment where you're to open up your mouth and speak the life of Jesus. Uh, He's going to come through in power the second you just take that step of faith and crack open those lips uh, to make known the mystery of the gospel. He says he's a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise this may be alluding to differences in nationality or cultures or languages or maybe even the different intelligence levels out there in education either way it seems that this phrase is speaking of the whole of humanity the whole of people that need to hear this message of gospel of the gospel he uses a phrase that's interesting the Greeks and the barbarians. It's essentially a way, a way of saying, I'm, I'm a debtor to tell my, my brothers in my homeland about Jesus. And I'm also a debtor to tell the world out there that it, in the Greek, it would maybe seem offensive to us in our day and age. It's the language that speaks of barbarians as opposed to just the Greek pe- the Greek speaking people who were more familiar to us. And so uh, speaking of the barbarians, the people that they don't even speak my language, they've got such a different culture. The, the words uh, kind of has the connotation of onomatopoeia, which is one of those words that sounds, you know, it sounds like it, it is. Bar, 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 or babble, 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 you know, bar, bar, bar. It's just it's what it sounds like when these people are talking. So Like, is it even my thing to tell them about the hope of heaven, you know? And essentially what God is doing in us in reaching Nepal and anywhere else the Lord might take us. Right now, there's a huge uh, presence of our church in Nepal regularly going. And you've heard me recently share how I'm teaching myself Nepali, reading some different books. And it's just so absolutely foreign to me. Like, there's nothing familiar at all. The the numbers are not shaped like our numbers. The letters are not shaped at all like our letters. There's 33 consonants and 13 vowels. And then if those vowels and those consonants are together, they got to be looped this way. And that it is so crazy and foreign. And uh, don't shoot me, but I've been experimenting with a little uh, chat GPT and asking like, hey, chat GPT. What are some ways for me to understand Nepali and the Nepali letters? And it was fun because, uh, I mean, it was like having a conversation with some weird spirit world. But anyways, you know, I know what you're thinking. And and uh, and it even said, oh, yeah, and take your letters that you're trying to learn and draw a picture out of them. So that you, and if you saw my Facebook post recently, that's what I've been doing. I've been trying to get it pressed into my mind. But... The language of Nepali, you guys, there's like five different levels that you speak it. 
out of your sinuses, out of the top of your mouth, out of the middle of your throat, out of your chest, out of your palate, out of, out of your dentures. There's dental, talk, and talk, and na, and tamang, and karayu, and, and, I mean, the book summary is like, all the air you can breathe out of your lungs as you're saying, karayu, na, nasally, tani, you know, it's, it's like, here's this guy, and I'm, I'm meeting with a, our friend in Nepal over Zoom, and I'm like, is this how it goes? And he's like, oh. You know. And Paul says, I'm a debtor to people that don't talk anything like me, and I've got to get the gospel to them. And if it means I've got to cram this stuff into my head so I can learn how to communicate with them, we'll do it. Okay, I'm a debtor to the Nepali unreached of the Himalayas because for 2,000 years, nobody's gone to them with the gospel. They've never heard of a cross. They've never heard of how to be reconciled to their creator. They've never heard the, t- the stories of Jesus and his love for them. And we are debtors to get this message out there. And so he says, uh, as much as is in me, I'm ready. So I'm a debtor and I'm ready. I know I made a SpongeBob reference a couple weeks ago that none of you got, but I'm a, I'm a father of, of a lot of children, you know, and one of SpongeBob's sayings is, I'm ready, you know, and Paul says, I'm ready, right? I'm ready or I'm eager to go preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So I'm, I'm obligated, I'm ready. And then verse 16, the third I am statement, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So he says, I'm not ashamed. And I was just looking up in the Greek lexicon. Uh, what, what does this mean? I'm not ashamed. And very simply, it just says to be ashamed, right? So, so there's nothing special about it. Like it is what it is. When you read it, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And it's as simple as that. Paul knew the power of the gospel. That the reason for his, his bold courage is that he knew what it was capable of doing. And he knew how wonderful it was. He knew how glorious it was. He was not ashamed of this good message or this good news. Now, Paul had a lot of reasons to feel reluctant or embarrassed, just as we do in the sense of outside and on on the flesh. Man, he was going to this massive empire of Rome that appeared externally to have everything figured out. Power, might, wisdom, philosophy, uh, you know, just seemed like everything was just fine, right? But we knew that we know that, uh, that there was corruption, that the, the souls of these men and women were perishing, that it would really not last all that long. It, it would end up uh, falling and that this whole land of Rome needed salvation. And, and Paul knew that it, that was the, the place where the power of God could prevail. But in all of its power, here Paul comes in and he comes from a land that Rome had conquered. He, in his physical stature, was historically known to be a weak, bent-over, bushy-browed, whiny-voiced guy. So there was nothing in and of his flesh that he had anything to boast or be 
pompous about before Rome. They didn't give a lick about, you know, his pharisaical intelligence in Judaism. They beat the Jews, you know. Uh, and so as he comes in externally, he had every reason to be ashamed. But when, with the treasure that he had, it was worth so much that like, he's like, I'm not ashamed. This is just incredible. And I've got to give it to you guys. Uh, Stott says, in the long run, only because we've experienced its saving power in our own lives has God reconciled us to himself through Christ, forgiven our sins, made us his children, put his spirit within us, begun to transform us and introduce us into his new community. How could we possibly be ashamed of the gospel? And you know, when you know what Jesus has done for you and where you've come from and what you've come out of and the things that you've done that you know in your heart merit the wrath of God upon you towards sin, and and yet you know that he graciously and mercifully saved you and redeemed you and made you a part of his family and gave you an inheritance in the heavens and has a future and a hope for you, how could you possibly be ashamed of Jesus? And it's just a good time to take stock of ourselves in the way that we communicate and shine for the Lord out in our community. Would the Lord be speaking to us today? You're ashamed of me. The way that you live and the way that you're quiet and the way that you never talk about me, you're ashamed of me. You talk about your wife at work. You talk about your kids at work. You talk about your projects out in the garage or in the shop or in the garden at work why don't you talk about me at work and i just feel like the lord would just speak to you that it's okay to start out small maybe tomorrow just go in just purposing in your heart i'm going to talk about jesus at the office tomorrow i'm going to talk about jesus in the break room tomorrow i'm gonna do it start out small start out small by just mentioning the name jesus in your conversation Just begin to crack that door open of bringing light into your world. The first Corinthians one eighteen tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There's no way around it. The world is going to think that. So you can go into it expecting it that to those perishing around you, they're going to think you're a fool for the things that you believe. But Paul also tells the Corinthians that for those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. There's transforming life happening within me. And he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians one twenty three that we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. So even just speaking about a God who came and died and was slaughtered on a tree uh, to the to the people out there, it's a stumbling block, it's foolishness. But again, it's the power of God to those who are being uh, saved. But he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, this is an example of, in literature, what's what's called litotes. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, litotes. It's exaggerating by using the negative form. It's underestimating for rhetorical express expression, especially when you're expressing the affirmative by its negative contrary. For instance, some other ways we see this is when someone might say, I was not a little upset. When you, What you really mean is, I was very upset. And so essentially, 
what Paul is saying when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's basically saying, I glory in the gospel. I'm thrilled with the gospel or I'm mighty proud of the gospel. Someone once said, no one will ever glory in the gospel unless they are first converted by the gospel. So it's just good time today in the presence of the Lord to take stock. Have I been converted and changed by the power of the gospel? Forgiveness of sins, new heart, new mind, new life, new nature in the gospel. Well, I'm not ashamed of it because it's powerful. It's the Greek word dunamis. We uh, distantly get our word dynamite from this. Speaks of explosive, violent, miraculous power and might. The gospel is the power unto salvation. You are not that power unto salvation. Many people don't speak up at work and at play because they just feel like, oh, I'm just so nothing. I'll never have the right words or the smoothness of speech or the right examples or the great apologia. I I will never. And it's like, hey, just the gospel itself, the story of what God does to save sinners, that is the converting power right there. And it's through the, it's through the foolishness of the one speaking that he gets all the glory anyways. The gospel is the power of salvation. It's a gospel that saves you. Story is told of a bishop who was traveling on a London train going to conduct a religious ceremony. He was confronted with a Salvation Army girl traveling in the same direction. She assumed he was so religious and that he didn't know the gospel. So she asked him, excuse me, bishop, is you saved? To which he replied, young lady, don't you mean, and I know what you're thinking, it wasn't the grammar that he was worried about, right? Don't you mean, have I been saved? Am I being saved? And will I be saved? You know the three tenses of salvation? This bishop spoke it to the Salvation Army girl. He explained the nature of salvation that I was saved from sin's penalty the minute I believed the gospel. Saved from sin's penalty. And today as I'm on this earthly pilgrimage, I am presently being saved from the ravages of sin's power. As I submit to the Holy Spirit and I'm in obedience to his word, I'm presently being saved from sin's power. And then one day, I will be saved from even the presence of sin around me. It's the power of God unto salvation. It saves past, present, and future. It saves everyone who believes. And you guys, this is really the the clause that's important. You must believe in this salvation. Saving faith, which is the necessary response to the gospel, is the great leveler. It's for the Jew, it's for the Greek, it's for anyone who's believed, who, who is saved. We're all saved the same way, and that is by faith. It's in this passage, this famous passage, you probably memorized this passage before, where we really see what the gospel is. 
John Stott mentions three different things here that we see the source of the gospel here, that it's from God or out of God, that it starts with God. He shows us that there's substance of the gospel, that men and women who were alienated from God are reconciled to him through faith in Jesus. The scope of the gospel extends to everyone who would believe. If you look at Romans 3.22, you see those three things, substance, uh, source, substance, and scope. Look at this, Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God shows that salvation comes from God. There's the source. Through faith in Jesus Christ, shows us the substance, that it's through faith. And then the scope tells us that it's to all and on all who would believe. And that salvation is available for you today, past, present, and future. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll have power and strength to live for him today. You'll have bright hope for tomorrow. But John Calvin said, all that he has achieved for us is no value to us as long as we remain outside of Christ. You've got to come into Christ, Jesus. You've got to believe upon the Lord Jesus and let him work these works in you. We see that it's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul, Paul would go first to the Jews, try to share the gospel. Sometimes he'd get some buy-in and get some great help in the ministry. But typically they would all go from there on out to the non-Jews. Verse 17 tells us, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So in the gospel, we see righteousness. And it's funny, I just look at in my old notes and just the definition I took out of the Greek lexicon was that righteousness speaks of equity. And isn't that a big, big buzzword in our culture these days? Equity, right? And man, a people that long for equity are looking in all the wrong places. It's actually in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you find equity, that you find righteousness, that you find justification is what the word speaks of. It's a legal tradition dealing with fairness and ethics. And it's there at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see equity as God himself, the ruler of the universe, lays down his life to save the very people that had offended him. That's the great equity. And that anyone who would believe upon that would equally have salvation at the level ground of the cross. The righteousness is not only spoken of, but the righteousness of God is spoken of in verse 17. It's a phrase repeated again and again in Romans. And then the only place we see this phrase, righteousness of God, in the rest of the New Testament is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We'll read 2 Corinthians 5.21 in just a little bit. But the righteousness of God is a phrase repeated again and again in the book of Romans. Uh, John Zeisler puts it that this righteousness speaks of, quote, salvation is the form that God's righteousness takes. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, right? 
for it is the power of God unto salvation. Okay. Then it speaks towards the righteousness of God. And I just love that what Zeisler put in his letter to the Romans book. Salvation is the form that God's righteousness takes. Ernest Kasman writes of God's righteousness in terms of power, God's saving power, his loyalty to his covenant, overthrowing the forces of evil, and vindicating his people. The Greek scholar N.T. Wright, understanding is similar. He writes, the righteousness of God is essentially the covenant faithfulness of covenant justice of the God who makes promises to Abraham, promises of worldwide family, characterized by faith, in and through the evil of the world would be undone. I know this is a lot, you guys. Like Reading the room, this is all like, whoa, I feel like I just stepped into like a college course. Get ready for the book of Romans, friends. All right. There's not necessarily a lot of razzle dazzle or as I'm learning in Nepali, jili mili. Okay. But it's a lot of legal jargon. It's a lot of deep doctrinal stuff that helps us know how we have standing in salvation, not by ourselves, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to know this. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, guys, uh, I just went and visited the Hassies the other day and they have sweet little baby Juniper or June. And uh, we're just learning three months old. And, and Kelsey said, and she's beginning to cut her teeth, you know? And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's so young. And I, I don't know, I've had four or five kids, you know, but it's like the teething. I don't remember when all that happens in the process, 14 or something like, I don't know, you know? But I do remember when those teeth did start coming in, you know, and you just would rub your finger on those gums and you'd start feeling that popping through. And what's the demeanor of the baby as that's happening typically? Rama pajama, you know, is what they're saying. That may be Romans for us. It may be a little bit of like the rub on the gums and a little pain, but man, I'm bringing my notebook to church. I'm bringing my pen. I'm rolling up my sleeves and lacing my boots up because there's work to do in knowing the great salvation we have and how to get it out there, right? This righteousness of God, an attribute, an announcement, an activity. Tim Chaddock said, God who is in the right in his activity of making people right results in a right standing of man before God. Let me say that again. God who's in the right in his activity of making people right results in a right standing of man before God. And that's where 2 Corinthians 5.21 comes in so well. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed and is given to mankind. We are made righteous in what's called the great exchange where God made Jesus his son who never knew any sin. He actually became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of of God in Christ Jesus. That's the great exchange. And if you trust in Jesus, you are made righteous. 
You are justified just as if you'd never sinned. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a doctor, became a theologian at Westminster Chapel in London, 1939 through 1968. I was reading his commentary of 14 volumes for Romans can be bought for $430. So uh, yeah, there you go. That's, uh, I, I found quotes for free on Google. So there you go. Okay, just kidding. Um, but Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he fulfilled God's law completely, perfectly, and absolutely. Not only that, he has dealt with the penalty meted out by the law upon all sin and upon all sins. He took your guilt and mine upon himself and he bore its punishment. The penalty of the law was meted out upon him so that he's honored the law completely, positively, negatively, actively, and passively. Jesus is the fulfillment of all things, or as Paul has put it, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He does more than just wipe your slate clean or take you back to a zero-sum balance. He actually gives you righteousness and gives you the wealth of being righteous before God. Douglas Moo said, The righteousness of God is first of all the saving intervention of God in history, predicted by the prophets, manifested by God at the cross and constantly made effective by the preaching of the gospel. Did you catch that? The glorious salvation is constantly being made effective as we preach the gospel. The opposite, it's almost painful to say that it's ineffective if we're not preaching the gospel. As the gospel's going out, It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believe. And that effectiveness is is being spread and propagated. This glorious salvation, the righteousness of God, and we're going to finish with this phrase, is from faith to faith. From faith to faith. Some translations say, from faith leading to faith. Almost sounds like a George Michael song, doesn't it? You gotta have faith to faith to faith. I gotta have faith, the faith, the faith. Okay. Man, it's such a catchy song. But it's horrible because old George doesn't lead you into what you need to have faith in. And so much of the world just kind of is existential and I gotta have faith, the faith, the faith. I don't know what in and in and in, you know. Or going to a wedding yesterday where just it was spoken that just just about Love is the thing. And it's like, love of whom? From whom? To whom? Like, there's no, where's the root at? There's, it's deeper. Okay? The righteousness of God is from faith to faith, to all and on all who believe. So, from faith leading to faith, it has a connotation, if you'll forgive me, to take us back to one of our childhood songs we sing as patriots right this land was made for you and me there are these phrases in it that say this land is your land this land is my land oh wait it's your land 
No, wait, it's my, no, just kidding. No, this land is your land. This land is my land. How's it go? From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. And so in the writing of this, this guy this was like a country music singer back in like the fifties that wrote this. I don't know that he understood. It's like a biblical thing to speak of from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, from faith to faith. It has connotation of movement and going somewhere and that there's action in the traveling that applies something glorious to us. One of my new reads from the Pillar New Testament commentary. Uh, what's his name? Oh man, I'm not seeing the footnote here. Um, last name, Keith. Keith, I think it is. Caleb Keith, I think. We're going to go with that. Um, he writes, the phrase is construed as an idiom of emphasis, meaning entirely by faith. The New Revised Standard Version says it construes a phrase as through faith, for faith, implying a purpose from shore to shore, from strength to strength, from town to town, from California to the New York Islands. Like it's speaking of purpose, okay? Uh, in all cases, uh, Keith says, the first and second elements of the idiom from A to A denote the same thing. There's progression, movement, and growth. From, be- from beginning to the end, it's faith, it's belief in the Lord Jesus Christ where there's movement from beginning to end in our lives. For the just shall live by faith. And then to really understand what is meant by uh, from faith to faith, you've got to uh, look at this quote, the just shall live by faith, which comes from Habakkuk. And I've got the reference for you. I'm going to wrap this up here. In 607 BC, one of Habakkuk, the prophet's frustration was that Israel was sinning her brains out and God hadn't judged them. Where was God? And it says the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me? There's strife and contentions that arise. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. I will, uh, and then um, he goes on to say in the next chapter, verse four, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. Uh, back there in uh, chapter one, though, it says the Lord answered and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it for the vision is yet for an appointed time. At the end of it, I will speak and not lie though it tarries wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith, but the just shall live by faith. It's a crazy prophetic vision that Habakkuk has where he's saying, why is our land so wicked? You're not correcting them, Lord. And the Lord says to Habakkuk, if you're ready for it, I don't know if you're ready for it. Like you've got to trust me. You've got to live by faith. 
but I'm going to bring in the wicked into the land to judge my wicked people. I'm going to use the wicked to do it. And so he tells Habakkuk, the just have got to trust me. From faith, from beginning to end, even in those seasons where I'm using the wicked to judge my people. Galatians also quotes that same thing. So as we have the worship team come on up, from faith to faith, speaks of from beginning to end, from A to Z, it's all about trusting in me. Even when things aren't lining up in our eyes and from our perspective and what we see, we've got to trust the word, we've got to trust the Lord, and we've got to trust the gospel. And you know, that's just something that I want to encourage you in as we just wrap up this, just what the power of the gospel is. Uh, Something that the Lord has just trained me in, in the last 14 years, this month, 14 years that I've lived in Prineville, and just in the studying the Lord's led me through, is such a value on my heart for gospel-centered preaching and gospel-centered living. And that the gospel is not uh, just the foundation of the house of Christianity, but the gospel is also, you know, the the stick-built walls and the plumbing and the electrical conduit and the wiring and the sheetrock and the plaster and the paint and the shingles and the roofing and the trusses and everything. It's all the gospel. And so often for Christians, we think that the gospel is just something that a pastor tags on the end of a sermon and maybe people will raise their hand or come forward or something like that. And it's just what gets people into Christianity But one thing that verses 16 and 17 tell us of our text today is that the gospel is the power of salvation, past, present, future. It saved me, and it is saving me, and it will save me. And from A to Z, from faith to faith, I am going to trust in the gospel. And Paul uh, rebukes the Galatians by saying, how foolish are you guys that you got saved by the gospel and now you think you're going to be made perfect by works of the flesh. You're not going to be made perfect by works of the flesh. You're going to be made perfect by keeping trusting in the gospel. And as we wrap up, there is such power in continually trusting in the gospel in every area of our lives. It is the power of God unto salvation. It saves us and it changes us. And this is no less true in matters of eternity and forgiveness of sins as it is to in our marriage, as it is to in our parenting, as it is into our conflict with a peer, as it is in it with, with a health issue we might be having. And I want to encourage you as we go through the book of Romans and as we just heard that the, the gospel is the power of the God unto salvation. The righteousness of God is revealed as people live from faith to faith. What that tells me is we should be saying very frequently in our homes and among our friendships, how can I apply the gospel to this situation? Okay, so right now, maybe you got your little notes, you got your little notebook, or you got, just think of whatever you're going through right now. How are you applying the gospel to it? Okay. Take the story of the gospel. Being created in the image of God. With great intention by God. 
for relationship with God, rebelling against God. And yet from that moment, God had a plan that he would pursue us and save us. And yet we kept trying to make it on our own and do it our way. And we just constantly fail. We found that as much as we tried to make it on our own, we would fail and stumble and fumble and bumble and just cause disaster. But God would come and pursue us and initiate that relationship again and break down that middle wall of separation. And that even while we were in rebellion to him, even when we were at war with him, he came and laid his life down for his enemies brutally treated for his enemies poured out his sinless spotless blood for his enemies for those that hated him that they might be saved that they might be redeemed not leaving us alone as orphans when he ascended but sending the holy spirit this is all part of the gospel that as we believe on him, we're forgiven of our sins, we're drawn back near to him, and we're given the Holy Spirit, where now we have power to live for him, power to obey, power to go out on his mission. And that one day he will come back and restore all things. We'll live in a, in a Garden of Eden-esque state again, always walking with him in the cool of the day. And just apply this to your situation. Hey, how is, how is the gospel, how could it be lived out and reflected in what I'm going through right now? And as you live that out, you're trusting in the power of the gospel to salvation and the righteousness of God is revealed through you from faith to faith. This is the plan of the Lord for us, you guys. I know it's deep because we want to muster up our own ideas and our own self-help plan and think of things through worldly wisdom and our own ways and the best book that's on the shelf out there. And I'm telling you, if it doesn't bring you back to the gospel, it's, it's heresy. It's heresy is what it is. Oswald Sanders says that self-righteousness and self-improvement all for the sake of self-glorification and self-comfort and self-happiness is the soul and sum of every false religion in the world. And for Christians, it's not about self. It's about Jesus and what he's done. Will you stand with me? Lord, we just pray for faith to faith in this place right now. As one man said, faith is the opening of dying lips to receive the water of life. That's, that's a, a great, wonderful part of the gospel is that we had nothing to give but to receive what you've done. Bankrupt, impoverished, indebted, corrupt, drowning. And you poured the water of life freely into these thirsty lips. And so, Lord, in our marriages, in our homes, in our relationships, in our sin struggles, every minute of every day, Lord, from faith to faith, Lord, let us trust in the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation.